If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to season three of 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. We open the season with a discussion between one of America's most admired public servants, Madeleine Albright, and author and former 60 Minutes producer, Abigail Pogrebin. Aside from being the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State, Albright is also a former ambassador to the United Nations. In this discussion, Secretary Albright and Abigail Pogrebin discuss the Secretary's book, Fascism, A Warning, a personal urgent examination of fascism in the 20th century and how its legacy shapes today's world. This conversation was recorded before a live audience on February 1st, 2019. Hi, everyone. I hope you are getting the salmon out of your teeth. Um, It's good to see you. This is such an honor. I'm supposed to be an impartial journalist, but I just have to say this is among the most excited I've been as a moderator at the JCC. So another round of applause just because she's here. Thanks, Abigail. I'm not going to presume the politics in the room, but I have to say, I think we would all probably love you to be back in the job right now. <laughs> um, so just because it's, it's your thing, these pins, which I loved, and as I researched you, I saw that they are very intentional, what you choose to wear when. So can you tell us what the choice was yep. today? By the way, I'm delighted to be here. I can't think of a better time to be with this great group. So thank you, and Abigail, very good to be with you. My pin is Mercury, the messenger. Uh, And that is really the purpose of uh, uh, what this book is about. Mm -hmm. I do have to say, one of my problems always when I go traveling is trying to decide which pin to wear. Uh, And it's, it's much more complicated than you think. But it's terrific that during this book tour, all I have to do is take this one. So that has simplified my life. Yeah. Um, just, uh, I love the story about the snake pin and why you ended yeah. up wearing that. Can you share that? I can, yes. So what happened, I clearly like jewelry. So what happened, when I um, went to the United Nations in February 1993, and it was the end of the Gulf War. And the ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And I was what is known as an instructed ambassador. You get your instructions from Washington. And they were that we had to make sure that the sanctions stayed on. So every day I said something terrible about Saddam Hussein, which he deserved. He'd invaded Kuwait. So all of a sudden there was a poem in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I had a unparalleled, unparalleled serpent. Yes. Okay. So I had a snake pin, and I decided to wear it when we talked about Iraq. So then, what happened was, I think you've seen how the ambassadors come out after a meeting and talk to the press, and um, the camera zeroed in, and the reporter said, "Why are you wearing that snake pin?" And I said, "Because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent." And I thought, "Well, this is fun." So I uh, went out, and I bought a lot of costume jewelry. Uh, and to depict whatever I thought we were going to do on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons, and on bad days, a lot of carnivorous animals and (laughs) spiders and things. And the other ambassadors, uh, you know, were kind of began to wonder what was going on. And then they said, what are we going to do today? And I said, read my pins. And that is how it started. But Pete, I have to tell you a couple of stories, which is when I was Secretary of State, the Russians were bugging the State Department, literally, and we found the guy. So it started early. Yes. uh, (laughs) Sitting there listening, and we did what... uh, diplomats do, which is to demarche Moscow and tell them what was going on. But the next time I met with the Russian ambassador, I wore this huge bug, and he knew exactly. (laughs) 
Where are you getting them, by the way? Are you are you going on eBay? Are you oh, all kinds of things. I mean, I travel sometimes. Some pin speaks to me. Um, one of my problems right now is what I try to do was when I go to China is to, they always have the year of something. This has been the year of the dog. It's about to be the year of the pig, and I need a pig pin, so. I'm so. sure we can all chip in. <laughs> um, so just because I was on the elliptical today preparing for you, and then what comes on but this INF announcement that Trump is, is it's another thing <clears throat> that he's going to do away with. <clears throat> can you just, because we have the luxury of having you here, Tell us, you know, what INF has meant, what it's, you know, and why this matters yeah. today. Well, first of all, I do think it's important to know that um, as dangerous as the Cold War was, there really were a certain set of rules uh, that we went by, and a lot of them had to do with arms control agreements, uh, a way of, of monitoring who had what and verification and rules that went with it. One of the things that was signed was something called the Intermediate uh, weapon treaty uh, between Reagan and Gorbachev. And it was supposed to limit the medium-sized missiles that are deployed uh, around um, in Russia and uh, we do in Europe with our friends and allies. And it's been very important in terms of missile limits and all the things that um, have made a difference. One of the issues has been, and this came up already uh, during the Obama administration, that the Russians were violating it in some way by building a new set of weapons that were, in fact, a threat to the treaty. Mm -hmm. And so there have been discussions about this for some time, um, and it continues. And the issue is, what do you do when one side is violating something? which does happen, people break the rules, but what you try to do is to fix them and try to figure out how to bring uh, the parties back into compliance. Instead, what has happened is the Trump administration has decided to withdraw from the INF Treaty. Um, and it's kind of typical of the things that they've been doing, uh, which is, in fact, to withdraw from the Paris Agreement and the agreement on Iran. And the, the truth is these agreements are hard to come by and there is a way to fix them. And so the question is what will happen now because it kind of opens up the field. It is making our European friends very nervous, uh, afraid of a, um, a real um, problem in terms of uh, uh, weapons duplicating and uh, multiplying uh, in Europe and other places. The other thing that has happened is the Chinese have begun to develop these intermediate weapons. The thing that would make sense is to bring the Chinese into it and decide that it can't just be a bilateral uh, treaty, but it could be multilateral. So just kind of uh, withdrawing is a sign of how the United States is treating agreements. And since uh, various treaties and agreements are one of the tools of national security, um, it's not a very helpful way to proceed in terms of controlling a variety of aspects. And, and when, when we look at these agreements, there are many um, Americans who might say, well, they're withdrawing and I haven't felt the repercussions of that yet. It's not, not necessarily unraveling us. We're not necessarily imperiled because of it. Is that short-sighted? I, I mean, are you saying this lays the groundwork for a very dangerous place to be? I think it is short-sighted um, because it was one way to control something that does terrify us, our nuclear weapons. One of the problems that has come up without getting overly into the weeds in this is that there has been an effort by an, the Bush and the Obama administration to modernize some of our nuclear capabilities, but the whole point that has been true of nuclear weapons is that they are a deterrent, uh, and it's based on mutually assured destruction that we could, which is kind of a creepy concept, but the bottom line is we have kept the rules, and uh, nuclear weapons have matter. not been used since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and so I think kind of all of a sudden thinking, and by the way, um, President Trump has been heard to say that he doesn't see why we have the nuclear weapons if we never use them. Uh, and so I do think that it's scary in that particular way. And then generally in terms of walking out of agreements, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a sign of not respecting how much work it is and the necessity of having those kind of tools. Yeah. Uh, so fascism, your book, it was prescient that you started to write this before Trump was elected. What made you even begin to work on a book like this? Yep. Well, I have been, obviously, along with 
everybody in this room, an observer of what has been going on in the world for some time. I think we're living in an incredibly complicated time that a lot of the rules um, that kept us safe uh, during the 20th uh, second part of the 20th century um, have been uh, broken in many ways that we don't know what the institutional structure is, how the UN operates, and um, generally how our institutions work, and also that there are increasing divisions in the United States um, due to economic change, um, that we didn't take seriously enough the effect of technology in taking jobs away, any number of things, and kind of a disquiet about how things worked. And I thought, and, and as much as I travel around the United States and love politics, one could really begin to see the divisions. And that what we really needed were leaders that could find common ground. And instead, what happened with the election uh, was in fact to elect a leader that um, made the divisions worse, that really um, made it, exacerbated those divisions. And so um, some people think the book is alarming. It is supposed to be alarming. Uh, and I think that it's important to, I decided that I needed to put the concept of fascism into a historical context uh, to know what creates it, what are the kind of leaders that take advantage of it. Well, that's, that's part of what I, I was fascinated by was the decision to do so much research and to give us so much history. It's also very accessibly done, but it's it's very deep. I mean, you're taking us through Mussolini, you're taking us through, uh, obviously, Hitler, McCarthy, Chavez, was for you personally to go back to this history and kind of relearn it? Was that something that was a heavy lift? Was it daunting in some way? Because there have been books about each. I mean, how did you approach the actual? Well, first of all, I really um, do think that doing research, even about things that you think you know about, um, you always see something different. And uh, while we all studied various things, once you look at them at a, from a different angle, you learn things. I learned an awful lot about Mussolini. I think he really was a very interesting What a character. fascinating character. Totally fascinating. And what it was interesting, and, and I think this is a part that's important about putting it all into historical context, that it's based on something that has gone wrong in a society where people are angry about something. So the Italians had fought on the side of the Allies during World War I, and then they were not recognized as having contributed enough. So there was a lot of anger in Italy, a lot of governments uh, that uh, lost power. Uh, there was a weak king, and all of a sudden this guy Mussolini, who uh, initially had been very lefty and interested in the communists, and also somebody who came from the outside, was a good speaker, was able to rally people, uh, became somebody that was a figure uh, that looked as though he might be able to fix something. The part that I found interesting and really uh, that I keep pointing out that's, that's hard to get at, both Mussolini and Hitler came to power constitutionally. Uh, the Russians had a revolution and the Chinese did, but the story of the, uh, what I, historically, as well as the uh, governments that I talk about now, they were either constitutional or elected. Um, and so what happened was King Emmanuel actually asked Mussolini to take over. Um, he was alleged to have said that he was going to um, clean the swamp, drain the swamp. Um, but what is very interesting is he, the best quote in the book comes from him, which is, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. So I decided to talk about the feather plucking uh, that's going on. By the way, you can't say those two words together too quickly. It was amazing to me to to actually learn that he had said drain the swamp. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that obviously yeah. for, for many of us, it, it's like po yeah. PTSD yeah. all over again. Um, but in terms of uh, this, this feather plucking, can you talk a little bit more about the kind of the slow pace with which this ultimately is corrosive? Yeah. That it seems like that runs through many of these stories. And if you look at Hitler and even the Jewish awareness at the time of what was happening, there was that sense of not really no noticing or or real or or capture um, appreciating how much trouble they were in. That, well, I think first of all, um, fascism is a very difficult term. It's not an ideology; it is a process. 
Uh, and people just throw the term around very loosely. And if you disagree with somebody, that person's a fascist. Um, or, I, you know, the teenage boy whose father won't allow him to drive, his father's a fascist. And so um, one of the hard parts was kind of defining fascism. And it does come, or historically it seems to be coming, out of a time when there is anger or disappointment or a sense of um, not being recognized properly in a country where there are, so there are divisions that are there in some way. And what happens is that one definition, or I think the basic one, is um, a group that is then identified as kind of a, the, a tribal group, a nationalist group, that this potential leader identifies himself with to say that you are not being uh, respected enough, you are really the answer <clears throat> to things in this country, um, and kind of adopting that group. The problem is it's a group that's then adopted at the expense of another group, the mm -hmm. minority. Now, democracy is based on majority rights, uh, majority rule and minority rights. When the minority rights are left out, then that undermines the system and then that's basic to what happens to the um, whole system. Um, there is no respect for institutions. Uh, there is not a respect for the judiciary. The press is the enemy of the people. Um, and you get a leader who thinks that he's above the law. That seems to kind of be, be the trend. I think the issue that is important, however, is as things do not improve, then you find a scapegoat. It's, it's the minority's fault. And what really happened in Germany, and they were angry about the Versailles Treaty and that they had reparations and all kinds of things and a financial crisis and the Weimar Republic wasn't working, and they started blaming the Jews. That was the issue, the, the original um, scapegoat. So and that's happening now mm -hmm. in a number of countries with the, the migrants. So you always have to blame somebody and blaming that minority. So that is a basic part of fascism. And ultimately, the thing that makes a fascist is um, violence, uh, a bully with an army. Now, as I've looked through all, nobody's comparable to Hitler. But as one, I've looked at what's going on now, the only real fascist is really uh, Kim Jong-un in, in uh, North Korea because he has the power. He arrests people. They are in, were in labor camps. Uh, people are executed. And the others I kind of look at in terms of what gradation they're being an you don't have to, there could, you can be an authoritarian leader without being a fascist. What about Putin? Where does he fall? I think Putin comes very close to, to being a fascist. Um, I think you called him uh, so cold as to be reptilian. Yes, well, he definitely. But I'll tell you the thing. Is he handsome? No. Uh, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, but he really. He takes his shirt off a lot. Yeah, that doesn't prove anything, or, or actually does prove it, that he's not. Um, but I think what is interesting is the change in him. When we first met him, President Clinton and I, was at an APEC conference where he wasn't yet fully president, and he was trying very hard to ingratiate himself. Uh, when I then went to, to Moscow and President Clinton, we did the summit, then you could tell he's very smart. He is a KGB agent. You never get over being a KGB agent. Well, I keep hearing that. What does that really mean? It's not, it's not like just the movies. Like, there's something brilliant about them? Well, I think it's interesting. I've read an awful lot about him in terms of wanting to be in a position where he could exert power quietly, propagandist, be in charge. Um, and it's very interesting to see his career about how he, he's very effective, mm. frankly. I think that has something to do with it. I have said the following thing, which is he has played a weak hand very well. Uh, President Trump has played a strong hand badly. Mm. Uh, and, but what, as a KGB agent, I think he has the capability to understand how to weaponize information, how to subvert, um, how to... Um, really get inside a society in order to uh, undermine it. And the part, I had done a, a survey of all of Europe in 91, and we had questionnaire. this was right after the fall of the wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and um, we had done questionnaires and all kinds of things, then focus groups. And one focus group, I'll never forget, was outside of Moscow. This man stands up and says, I'm so embarrassed 
We used to be a superpower, and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. Mm. And what's happened is Putin has plugged into that kind of loss of national greatness. Um, and even though the economy in Russia is not doing well, he is showing that Russia's come back as a power uh, and uh, is threatening now. And so one of the things, to go back to the INF Treaty, you know, what, the, what are they doing? How are they showing their power? Uh, Crimea, Georgia, and now subverting. Well, they did our election, but also subverting ultimately what's going on um, in the NATO countries and trying to separate us from our allies. So, so many of us uh, have noticed and keep being reminded that Trump doesn't seem to criticize Putin. He seems to actually dodge any opportunity. Um, without necessarily speculating on why he might be protective of him, how much do you think that that's actually very concerning, and particularly the fact that when they meet, nobody is with them other than the translator, and that the notes um, were, were they asked for them to be destroyed, correct, or not no, shared? No, I think it is very concerning. I think that... Um, Can you just remind everyone about the notes so that we well, all Well, what that? happens, let me just say, first of all, um, I do think that when a leader of a country meets another leader, under normal circumstances, there's a lot of preparation for it. We have a whole government that is prepared to uh, help in when a president goes abroad or meets a foreign leader. Um, How and, many people are normally in the room for this? Well, it, that all depends. But, I mean, there's always somebody. Uh, there is an, uh, You have to have your own interpreter, and the other person has their interpreter. And then there usually is somebody that is a note-taker. Often, uh, when President Clinton had meetings, I'd be in the meetings also. Sometimes I wasn't, but there was always somebody taking notes. And the reason for that is that, first of all, I do think um, personal relationships make a difference and getting to know another leader. And by the way, one of the things that happens before you have a meeting with a leader, you do get a pr uh, the, the system has prepared for you kind of a profile of that person. What is it they want out of the meeting? I just can't stress how much preparation mm -hmm. usually goes into something like this. But the reason to have somebody in there is because theoretically they are making important decisions that need to be carried out by the system. So somebody has to come out of the meeting and say, we decided to do X, mm. and it's up to the State Department to do this and Commerce Department to do that. So there's no deliverable out of it if nobody's in there, in addition to not knowing exactly what went on. I do think, and I, I want to point out, the role of the interpreter is incredibly important uh, because, um, first of all, even if you know the language, uh, it allows you to listen to, I mean, what happened, for instance, when you I... You listen twice. Right. Kind of. I mean, I, I went to Russia to talk to Yeltsin, and at a certain point he said, stop interpreting, she speaks Russian, which happens to be true. But the bottom line is that not everybody on my delegation did. Mm. Plus, it gave me time to think about what had been said. Um, so it's important, and that person, in many ways, it's sacrosanct, because they are... Uh, we're doing an incredible job in what they do. I don't think it's great to subpoena their notes because, by the way, if you ever look at them, they're just kind of scribbly things that they have their own shorthand. For. Is it handwritten usually? It's handwritten. Yeah, they sit there, but mm. but they do have their own way of writing things down because you can't. You're, they're not stenographers, um, and so. Um, I think that it is important that these meetings have taken without the benefit of somebody there. Um, I said a, a snotty thing the other day, which was that... Um, this is a had, good place to share Well, the thing that, that happened was apparently there was a meeting that had been... What had happened was the meeting that was supposed to take place at the G20 in Argentina was canceled because of some of the things the Russians had done. Mm -hmm. However, as it turns out in the last few days, it turns out that President uh, Trump and Putin did have a meeting, and the only person that was in there was Melania. So Melania comes from a former Yugoslavia, and uh, most of them understand Russian, so maybe she could help. <laughs> Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, 
roasting his own coffee, and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. Justin, in, I would love to just get back for a minute to um, uh, North Korea, which you mentioned. You met with uh, Kim Jong-un's yeah, father, yeah, yeah. so that's ill. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, what he was like and having met him, where you think things are um, in a realistic way with North Korea now. Well, let me say, I was the highest level sitting official to have met with a North Korean leader until uh, Secretary Pompeo did. Um, and we knew very little about, we have no, and one of the reasons that I believe in diplomacy and diplomatic relations, we have no embassy in North Korea. And so, you know, and what happened was that we'd gone through years of talks with the North Koreans on any number of issues, and there had been a variety of talks. And what happened in the late summer of 2000, the number two guy came to the United States, and I met with him in my office, and then later we went to the uh, Oval Office, and he came in full uniform, and he gave this red folder to President Clinton, inviting him to go to North Korea. And what President Clinton said, well, maybe at some point I might do that, but first I have to send the secretary um, in order to prepare this. They weren't real happy with that. I had no idea what I was going to do. And I'm. Uh, and what happened was that the— Wait, What do you mean by that? You had no idea. Well, what was going to happen? What were the meetings? What was—I did get briefings from our intelligence agencies, and they basically said that um, Kim Jong-il was crazy and a pervert. Um, so I found out that um, he wasn't crazy. So, uh, uh, and um, what happened was I had called Kim Dae-jung, who was the president of South Korea, who had met with him, and he said, you're going to find him very smart. And uh, so I go, but I am stuck in, they first put me in this guest house, and I had no idea what was going to happen. And I knew that they were listening mm -hmm. and filming. And then I, maybe other people knew this, but I didn't know that when you type on a laptop, that just by the strokes they can tell wow. what you're doing. So we sat there. And all of a sudden I get an instruction saying that I had to go and pay my respects to his embalmed father. So I go, and um, it's more complicated than meets the eye because if you bow too low, then our press says you're being obsequious. Mm. And if you don't bow low enough, you haven't done what you're supposed to. So I must have been at the right angle because when I got back to the guest house, they said the dear leader will now see you. So we go and have our press conference, and uh, which was something like out of the 50s with old cameras and things. And I'm standing next to him, and I see we're the same height. And so I, I had on high heels, and I look over at him, and so did he. Um, and his hair was a lot poofier than mine. And um, But it was a fine press conference. By the way, pins, if you look at the picture, I have on this huge American flag, uh, feeling that. Um, anyway, so we then uh, go and have meetings, and they really were very, um, I think, informative, very technical about missile limits. Um, and something that I think was very interesting. Um, and then there's a fancy dinner and all that. So all of a sudden, through his interpreter, he says to me, how does my interpreter compare with Kim Dae-jung's? And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have this poor man killed. And so I was able to say what is true, which is that the Kim Dae-jung had the best woman interpreter that I'd ever heard, but your interpreter is terrific, too. Then he says to me, so that he liked the Swedish model. And I thought, model, model. It turned out to be the economic model. Oh. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that we were in the middle of talks. 
when uh, the results of the November 2000 election came through. Mm. Um, and even though I, when I came back, I briefed uh, uh, Secretary Powell about it during the transition, he was very interested in it. When he started talking about it, there was a headline in the Washington Post that said, Powell to continue Clinton policies on North Korea. He was pulled into the Oval and told no way. So I hold no brief for the North Koreans, but this has gone back and forth. I do have to tell you, though, that I take full responsibility for Dennis Rodman, because the one thing that we did know was that Kim Jong-il liked basketball. So I took over a basketball autograph by Michael Jordan, wow. which is in their Holy of Holies, and therefore I raised the whole diplomatic level of basketball. Yeah. <laughs> so when Trump says that he's meeting with the, with the leader uh, today and it's going so well and they're so close and we're so safe, is this a joke to you, honestly, the way that he's conducted himself in terms of uh, Kim Jong-un? Well, yes. I mean, one of the things that's happened... Uh, the Singapore summit, for instance, I was asked whether it was a win-win or a Kim-win. It was a Kim-win, because the things that happened was that the pre President Trump canceled the exercises with our allies, the South Koreans and the Japanese. The military exercises. The military exercises, um, and kind of made some promises. What's interesting, it came after there had been some fairly um, hysterical exchange of fire and fury and who had the bigger guns and all that. Um, and then all of a sudden, they're best buddies. Uh, and in terms of a lot of flattery, what has happened since is that there has been no definition of denuclearization. Um, and that's, by the way, one of the things that the intelligence team said to President Trump recently, and he didn't believe it, but there have been no definitions. Um, I don't know there have not been a lot of, I do believe in diplomacy and all the help that one needs in this. There have been some attempt at lower level talks. Some have not worked. Uh, there is a special envoy, uh, Steve Began, who now theoretically has some talks. There is theoretically going to be another summit um, sometime in this month. And so we'll see. But the summits and the bilateral meetings do need preparation and they can't do kind of seat of the pants uh, transactional, and there are definitional aspects. So I, I do think there's an issue on this, uh, where it's going. I want to come back to America for a minute and Joe McCarthy. I, it was such an interesting part of your book that you that he's a part of it, and I, I think I can see why you make the case for why he belongs in this book. But that's where I began to really feel the threads of Donald Trump today. Can you address why he's part of the book and where you think he fits into the sort of fascism framework? Well, I think that part of it, and I think the easiest way to describe it is fascists or fascist-type people, because I, I tried carefully, as I said earlier, not just to say somebody's a fascist, but operate on the basis of the fear factor. Um, and what McCarthy was doing was scaring us all about communists under the bed and also that members of the State Department were communists and got everybody riled up because of the fear factor. And so I think that's one of the most dangerous things that go on in terms of allying yourself with this X group um, and saying that we're all the same and these other people are um, the whole problem. And when it's based on the fear factor, uh, that is where I think we are in danger. So, for instance, when Trump now talks about all the killers and drug addicts and coming over. Uh, coming over, that's all based on the fear factor. And I do think in every society there are people who legitimately are concerned about the direction that it's going in. Uh, we were fighting communism, but not everybody that disagrees with you uh, then was a communist. Not everybody now is a, you know, a uh, murderer. Um, and are a terrorist. And so that's why I thought he belonged in the book, because it started out with something that wasn't so bad and then kind of magnifies itself into um, a real threat to the nation based on the fear factor. So even if we look at immigration now or the border uh, uh, debates now, Trump is, is tapping into something people, some people feel, have an anxiety about, which is the sense of our way of life is in jeopardy, our jobs are being taken, or our, in his case, our women are being threatened, whatever he's throwing out there. It's somehow it's working 
for some for a, for a certain number of Americans, which surprises me, but it's not to be ignored. So, what would you explain? How would you explain why this fear kind of strategy ultimately takes hold in something that's somewhat real for people? Like, what is what well, is that? That's I, I'm not a shrink, but I I really do think that sometimes people want some easier explanation. But one of the things I have to say um, in my, you know, we all know the saying, see something, say something. Mm -hmm. I've added to that, do something. And on my to-do list is to talk to people with whom we disagree. Um, I actually don't like the word tolerance because it comes from tolerate, put up with. But I think we need to kind of respect and try to figure out what really is a motivating factor for people. And so, and have the chance to have some kind of a, a civilized and respective, respectable and respectful conversation. But I do think part of the problem is there is something in American society that is not working in terms of, I mean, what is interesting today, for instance, I was listening to uh, the radio in terms of the job report. There more jobs have been added, um, and apparently the private sector is doing pretty well, and people are making money. At the same time, the unemployment rate went up. Mm -hmm. The shutdown of the government obviously created some of that. But we don't put these two numbers together, and there truly are people that are not doing well in this society. And some of it has to do with um, technology or in that at this moment it all mostly had to do with the wall issue. But even before that, people that don't have the educational skills to deal with the new jobs or um, have had to move. And, and it goes back to my initial point, find the scapegoat. And so there's the fear, there's the factor there. And then if you've got a leader who says to you, it's all the fault of these people that are coming in that don't look like you, um, that's how you manage to manipulate it. The part of all the leaders that I write about in the book, they are clever propagandists. They know how to manipulate uh, public opinion, and that's why there needs to be this respectful conversation. You write, the elephant rampaging through these pages is, of course, Donald Trump. So I just want to hit him head on here in terms of this book. How scared should we be about why he's even kind of uh, the shadow that runs through this book. I would just say as a reader, that is what's happening uh, as you go through the history. Um, so how much do you feel like he's a phenomenon that will pass and will survive it? Or how much do you really want this to be a call to, to action? Well, first of all, the context. I do think um, that and this may sound paradoxical, that democracy is both resilient and fragile, um, and that it's very important to try to explain what is going on. The other part I um, feel very strongly about, I mean, I'm so grateful to be an American, um, and my father used to say regularly, there is nothing better than to be a professor in a free country. But what he also said was that Americans take democracy for granted. Mm. We, having had to leave Czechoslovakia twice because of fascists and communists, and so um, that was really a lesson and that we are taking things for granted. And so I don't think we can kind of say, well, this will go away. I think what bothers me is when we try to normalize um, Trump's behavior or actually act as if it's another episode in reality TV. And, you know, all of a sudden, there actually were articles about saying we now have a new character in this uh, reality TV show or whatever. And that we, and it, some of it is amusing, but mostly we have to be careful not to normalize it. And I do think that, um, I think we can live through another two years of this, but we cannot live through another four years. Mm -hmm. And part of it, I have to say, uh, in terms of I travel abroad a lot, and obviously, you know, national security issues are my forte or the, my interest. Um, and what I have found that all of a sudden the U.S. is AWOL. Mm -hmm. I was just at a conference in Marrakesh, which was on um, one of the things I attended was an immigration conference uh, by the U.N. And Louise Arbor, who's a Canadian, had invited me to speak. And I get there and the chair of the United States is empty. Mm -hmm. um, Russians and Chinese were there. We were not there. 
and I think the chair is empty. And us being AWOL in terms of international issues is a major issue because um, the whole system, if there's a vacuum, somebody fills it, and there will be some kind of organizational system that we are not a part of, and we will all, our national interest will be weakened as a result of that. On a lighter note, you mentioned reality TV, and I, I promised Joy Levitt that I would point out that you are a TV star, um, that you were on Mad yep. Madam Secretary. Yes. And also the Gilmore Girls. How well, I just have to tell you how this all started. Okay. Uh, I do have to admit I watch TV. Let's just forget uh, foreign yeah. policy, uh, you know? And I do actually, I'm one of my best activities is to rationalize all my crazy behavior. So I used to watch Army Wives because I thought it really had very strong messages about how hard it was to live on base and all those things. So then, um, and I did watch Gilmore Girls because I really liked the mother-daughter thing. Mm -hmm. So I get a phone call after I'm out of office from the producers saying, would I mind if somebody played me in Gilmore Girls? And I said, yes, I'd mind. I want to play myself. <laughs> uh, so they said, well, there was this thing that they always did on Rory's birthday, which was that the mother lay down in bed next to her and they'd talk about things and they wanted me to do that and I rationalized that the reason that it was okay for me to do that was that they were trying to get her to go back to college so it was an educational thing. So I did that and um, I, uh, and what is interesting is Rory actually looks a little bit like my youngest daughter and so all of a sudden my kids called up and they said, Mom, you weren't acting, you were just playing yourself. So that was it. <laughs> so then I get later a call from Amy Puller to come on Parks and Recreation. And I had noticed that she actually has a photograph of me um, on, on her wall. So what happened was in one episode, um, some guy came in and wanted to date her and said, is that a picture of your grandmother? And she said, anybody who doesn't know who Madeleine Albright is, I'm not going out with. <laughs> yeah. So then they asked me to be on that. And then the Madam Secretary thing happened, and I get a phone call from Taylor and she said, could we have lunch? And she wanted to talk about what it was like to be Secretary of State. So we're having this serious conversation, and I thought, I've really lost it. Um, and then the writers were very interested in talking to me. And I thought, this is really very good, because it raises various uh, foreign policy issues. So I, I did go on the show, and then they invited me to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner with them. And whenever we walked, when we walked in and somebody would say, Madam Secretary, she would turn around. <laughs> you know. So then later, what we just did for the opening of their season was she invited um, <clears throat> um, Hillary and Colin Powell and me <clears throat> to be on the show. And it really was, we kind of got scripts of things, and I got in an unscripted line that they left in. Wow. So I don't know if anybody watched it, but we'd come in and sit down. Um, Go ahead. And, uh, you know, she, there's been a horrible thing at the White House, and she has summoned us to meet with her. And I actually said, it's wonderful when the current Secretary of State uh, calls her predecessors to consult. We used to do it all the time. <laughs> and they left it in. Your next career could be improv. You never know. I just want to talk about your discovery of your Jewish roots, because for so many of us, that's quite a story. Um, and you alluded to the fact that you have a very personal connection to the idea of uh, fascism and its history, because you escaped twice yeah. or you left twice. Um, but can you just talk about how that actually uh, played out yeah. kind of briefly, yeah. but, and then also how many um, relatives you realize were lost? Right. So um, I was raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian, and found out I was Jewish. So I have uh, very good uh, spiritual discussions with us. So this is what happened. Uh, I uh, had become ambassador to the United Nations, and that was the first time that my name kind of was in the news. And I started getting letters from people um, either written in Czech or indecipherable handwriting, but mostly they would say have dates and villages that didn't make any sense of people saying that they were my relatives. One letter that I remember was from a man who said he'd gone to high school with my father in 1915, which would have been impossible since my father was born in 1909. But most of these letters had something to say like, I need a visa or send me some money. And I just kind of didn't know what to do about them. And then what happened 
in the fall of 96, I got a letter from somebody that had all the villages right and the dates right and everything. And this person said, I knew your family to be a fine Jewish family. So what then happens, I was just, uh, my name was out there to be Secretary of State, and I was being vetted by the White House Council. And they asked kind of all the normal questions about taxes and nannies and things. And so then they said, we ask everybody this question at the end, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you'd like to tell us? And I said, well, look, it's perfectly possible that I'm of Jewish background because I just got this letter. And they said, so what? The president is not anti-Semitic. Um, and so over the holidays, I talked to my daughters um, and um, they How just many do you have? I have three daughters. And um, they just loved my parents and thought all, anything was possible and all kinds of stories and everything. My youngest daughter is married to a Jewish man. And so they thought, you know, great. Um, so I was trying to sort all that out. And you're not allowed to talk to the press between the time that you've been named and the time you're confirmed. Uh, but a reporter did want to do a profile of me. So my office gave him names of all kinds of people everywhere, including in Europe. Um, and then two days after I was confirmed as Secretary of State, by the way, 99 to nothing, uh, the only person uh, that was missing was Jay Rockefeller, and obviously a Democrat, and I've never let him forget that. So, uh, but uh, what happened was the reporters came in, I'm sitting in the office of the Secretary of State, and they're handing me these uh, index cards, disgusting, the Nazis were very good at keeping records. Mm. And these were uh, with names of my family, of people that have been sent to concentration camps. Mm. It's one thing to find out you're Jewish, it's another to find out about people being sent to concentration camps. So I knew about the Holocaust, I just never occurred to me that it applied to my family. So then what happened, I had to actually prove I could be Secretary of State and not pick up and leave to go and find out uh, what had really gone on. So I asked my brother and sister to go um, to over to Czechoslovakia at that time to sort out what had happened. Um, they met with an incredibly nice man who's head of the Jewish community uh, in Prague. And they went around to a variety of the small villages and all kinds of things and did, in fact, begin to put the story together. Uh, I then went to Prague later in, while I was in office. And by the way, when I'd gone to Czechoslovakia before, um, at that stage, the Pinka Synagogue was under reconstruction mm -hmm. and I hadn't gone in. Mm -hmm. I did go in 96 with Hillary um, and I did see kind of, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people here have been there, but um, it all kind of looks like feathery painting, but it's people's names um, that had been sent to concentration mm -hmm. camps, but it had, I had no reason to look at that. When I went back, uh, after I was Secretary New, there are uh, names of my family there. And then most recently, I really did put the whole story together. So 26 members of my family mm -hmm. died in concentration camps. And so two summers ago, I took my children and grandchildren uh, to Terezin uh, and dedicated a plaque to those that had died. And so it became a very personal story. Um, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to explain uh, what happens when you uh, give in to evil yeah. um, and, and the whole scapegoat and all the things. So it is in that regard a very personal story. And how kind of discombobulating was it for you? Did it, did it really change the way you felt kind of about yourself in your past and the fact that this was not something you knew until so late? Well, I think that um, two things I felt. First of all, as I said, I knew about the Holocaust. And, um, people say, did it affect your thinking about policies? No, it didn't. Uh, because, I mean, ethnic cleansing and all that were things I dealt with when I was ambassador to the UN before I knew about it. And so uh, this is very much a part of as somebody that was raised in Europe mm. that was very much a part of it. My parents were dead, and I was trying to figure out what really had happened um, and why they didn't tell us. And I think it was because, I think they were very protective, that they kind of thought that, um, uh, you know, why, why do this to us? And that there's nothing we could do about it. And the bottom line is I felt 
the way I really felt was just incredibly sad for my parents mm. who had dealt with all this. Um, uh, I did, um, it's very weird, but one of the things that showed up uh, not long ago was my grandmother's diary, which I talk about in the book. Um, and that my mother, how, we, my brother, sister, and I talk a lot about this, how especially she dealt with this um, as a very emotional person and uh, how hard it must have been. So mostly I thought about my parents. I have to say I was really hurt that people thought I was lying. Mm. Um, and I had a very interesting experience. I can't remember, like maybe five years ago, I was getting an honorary degree from Princeton. Uh, and I'm sitting next to the president of Princeton, and we're having the dinner the night before. And he said, you know, I really um, was just thought you were, you know, you're a smart person and, and that you lied about all that. And I thought, did I come here to hear this? And then he said, until I found out I had the same story. Wow. You know, mm. and so I think there are a lot of people that this has been true. Yep. I don't question my parents. I don't question anything they did. I, I have kind of thought a lot about the circumstances. Czechoslovakia was a very interesting country when it was formed in 1918. Uh, and um, it people were patriotic Czechoslovaks. It had a very weird religious history. It had been the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. The first Protestant reformer was not Martin Luther. It was Jan Hus, a Czech that was burned at the stake. Mm. And so to be a good Czech, you kind of didn't know what religion you were. I think uh, that the having talked to this guy, Thomas Krauss, who was head of the Jewish community in Prague, he said that Czech, Czech Jews were quite, um, uh, you know, not very uh, good Jews, I guess, in terms of really uh, being observant. very religious mm -hmm. and observant. Um, what is interesting is, uh, and he showed me, pictures from the children did in Terezine that had Christmas trees in them. Mm. Anyway, very complicated story. And and I just wish I'd had a chance to talk to my parents about it. But, but I really mostly just felt desperately sorry yeah. for them. Well, since we're at the JCC, I'll just say we're glad you're in the tribe. That, that, yeah. <laughs> um, so I promised the secretary she could stay on schedule. I just want to end with a quote of yours from the book. Uh, for freedom to survive, it must be defended. And if lies are going to stop, they must be told. Thank you for this book. Thank yeah. you for being here. Thank you for all of you. Yeah, Thank all you all. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Secretary Madeleine Albright talking to Abigail Pogerbin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.